So lately, for some reason in my mind, the last weeks or months, really, um, I've been hanging out with Ananda a lot. He keeps Ananda, the Buddha's uh, attendant, the last 25 years of his life. He just keeps popping up in my mind, in my heart, and he, uh, he inspires me a lot. He kind of gives, uh, he's an easy way into the human face of the whole uh, period of the Buddha's sasana. And so I keep thinking I want to talk about Ananda and maybe some of the other people at that time. And I keep not doing it because uh, I just kind of think, well, why should I just tell stories? But then I decided, what the heck? I just really want to talk about Ananda, so I'm going <laughs> to. Um, I mean, it can be easy, or it can happen anyway. We are so seriously practicing in this uh, Buddhist tradition and teaching of the elders. And we hear about the Buddha. We hear about how he gives talks. And you know, 500 people immediately become arhats. And uh, it, can, it can all seem a little removed or a little uh, beyond our possibility or almost enter into the realm of the mythological in a way, even though we're always talking about how Buddha is a, was a human being. And um, in the suttas and in the commentaries, but more in the suttas, you really can get a sense of the personality of quite a few of the people. And uh, for many, Ananda is the easiest way into that. He has a very distinctive personality. Quite a lot is known about him, comparatively. And uh, to me, he's really quite inspiring. So I, I just share a few aspects that, you know, probably common knowledge, but just how it, it brings me in touch with the human, the alive, the immediacy right now, the people just like us. Well, maybe not just like us, but close to being like us, you can imagine. So Ananda was called the guardian of the Dhamma, is one of the names that the Buddha gave him. And he had many, many wonderful qualities. The one that when I first think of him, and I mentioned this to Miyoshi today, I might talk about Ananda, and she immediately goes, oh, great, I love Ananda. And I said, OK, what's the qualities that you love so much. And the first one she said is the first one for me too, his devotion, his faith. Yeah, he was the, the last 25 years of the Buddhist life. Ananda was his attendant day and night every day for 25 years. But his devotion wasn't just to the Buddha as a human being. It was really to the Dhamma. You know, and you know the statement that the Buddha made that if you see the Dhamma, you see the Buddha. There's no need to see him as a person. And you really get that from Ananda, his, his dedication to the Dhamma played out in his love for the Buddha. He was also a very kind person. He did lots of acts of kindness, a lot of metta, a lot of integrity. And he also liked people. He was, in, in relative terms, a very social monk relative to Mahakasapa, Anuruddha, who went off and never wanted to talk to anybody. Ananda was very uh, friendly, very caring to both uh, ordained and lay people, and very, very helpful. And he was much beloved by both uh, lay people and monks and nuns. So how he became the Buddha's attendant 
is interesting in itself because it really uh, shows his personality. It says, when the Buddha was 55 years old, he was addressing all his senior monks. And he said, you know, in my 20 years as the father of the Sangha, I've had many different attendants. None of them was really quite right. Some little sense of willfulness would become apparent after time. So I want, you know, I'm looking for now an attendant from my last years. And of course, all the noble disciples. When it says noble disciples, it means fully enlightened ones. All the noble disciples immediately offered themselves to be the attendant. Only Ananda just modestly held back. And the Buddha didn't pick any of them. And the other monks turned to Ananda and said, well, you should offer. you know." So he did, and the Buddha chose him. And when it came out later, when they said, why didn't you offer? And the Buddha, the Ananda said, and this is why his faith was so great, he said, the Blessed One, he knows what he needs, and he knows who would be the best. What is it for me to offer? He will choose what he needs. And he was always like that, just complete faith and, and no sense of willfulness or putting himself forward in any way. So he agreed, of course, he wanted to be the attendant, just like all of them did. And he agreed, but just he, he gave eight conditions. He requested eight conditions from the Buddha, conditions under which he would be his attendant. And these really show both his um, lack of putting himself forward. He just had no pride, no sense of thinking himself special, and also his, his love for the Dhamma. So he had eight conditions. The first four, the first one was, that if the Buddha had a gift of robes, he would never pass it on to Ananda. The second was that the Buddha would never give Ananda any of his alms food. The third, that if someone gave the Buddha a special dwelling place, he would not give it to Ananda. And the fourth, whenever the Buddha got a personal invitation to a special meal or so, that he would not include Ananda in that. And you see Ananda said later, this is so no one would think that he was profiting, personally profiting, by being the Buddha's attendant. And then he had four other wishes, that if he, Ananda, were invited to a meal, he asked for the right to transfer the invitation to the Buddha. If people came from far away to see the Buddha, he asked the Buddha for the privilege that he could always lead the people to see the Buddha when they came to look for him, which is, I think, a lovely thing. If he, Ananda, had any doubts, any inquiries about the Dhamma, he asked for the right to ask of these of, to the Buddha at any time. And if the Buddha gave a discourse during Ananda's absence, Ananda asked for the privilege to have the Buddha repeat it to him privately, which since Ananda wasn't going to any of the meals the Buddha was invited to, where he would always give a discourse. He must have had to repeat a lot. But this last one is very significant because another thing about Ananda was his incredible memory. The reason Buddha repeated all the discourses is because Ananda remembered them all word for word. So when you read the suttas, how many of them start with, thus I have heard? That's Ananda. Everyone that begins, thus I have heard, that's Ananda after the Buddha died at the first council, recollecting the sutta, the talk that he heard the Buddha give. 
and then giving it. I know we can't even remember the seven factors of enlightenment, you know. <laughs> he remembered them all. <laughs> so the first four were so he wouldn't benefit, but the second four conditions so that he could be said to fulfill the duties of his post, you know, in order to serve all beings. And so for 25 years, day and night, for 25 years, he served the Buddha. He said at one point, where I have this. So at the end of the Buddha's life, he said, for 25 years I served the Lord with loving deeds, loving words, and loving thoughts. When the Buddha paced to and fro, I paced along behind. And it was really like that. His duties as attendant were myriad. Part of it was that just being present, taking care of the Buddha's physical needs, you know, washing his feet, helping him get a place to lie down, making sure he had food. He was like a social secretary, organizing all the different things, making sure people could come and see him. He often served as a go-between between lay people who would come to Ananda and ask a question, and he would go to the Buddha. One of the beautiful things, I always think, in reading how he served this role, because he was the gateway to the Buddha for 25 years. And I know in um, some spiritual scenes, like nowadays, when there's you know, the, the, the big charismatic teacher and hordes of people wanting to get close and come and see, and there's often this sense of an in-crowd, right? And the in-crowd's job, or what usually happens with the in-crowd, is making sure they stay the in-crowd by keeping other people the out crowd, right? And Ananda was just the reverse, that one about if people come from outlying areas, I request always the privilege that I can bring them to see the Buddha. His goal was to help people hear the Dhamma, not keep them out. He genuinely cared for people, he was really kind, and he served as this bridge rather than a barrier between people and the Buddha. So that was really a beautiful quality. For 25 years, he was the perfect attendant, meaning that he didn't ever show any aspects of willfulness. Really perfect devotion to the Dhamma in thought, word, and deed. The in another interesting part about Ananda, it gives us into the human element. Besides the fact that he was social, that's kind of why we know more about him. There's more stories about him that he was not a fully awakened arhat. And most of the other monks and nuns that you read about, you read about them because they became fully awakened arhats pretty quickly. You know? And Ananda didn't. He was a, a stream entrer. You know, his, his, the eye of the Dhamma had awoken in him. But then for the 25 years that he was with the Buddha day and night, listening to every sutta, every talk the Buddha gave, and so much discussion, he, he never completely awakened until after the Buddha died. And yet, the Buddha himself said, even though Ananda is still on the path of higher training, it would be difficult to find someone who equals him in wisdom. So just to know, you don't have to like, you know, think, oh, only, only stream entry, not good enough. You know, it's really quite a deep wisdom. There are many suttas where Ananda, he was really an excellent teacher. 
partly because of his affinity to people. You know, he really tuned into people. He could say what was appropriate at the right time. Well, the Buddha could do that too, but that's because he was omniscient, could read what was in people's minds, like I, that story about the leper last week. But Ananda, it was more that he just had the human empathy. You know, he could tune in, his heart could tune into people and say what was helpful. Sometimes the Buddha would ask him to teach. There's one story, and I like this too, because it shows even the Buddha is human. They, the Buddha and Ananda were, were the big assembly of the Sakyans, the Buddha's clan. And the Buddha was giving a long talk most of the night, most of the night. And then he said, <laughs> I know you guys think an hour is long. <laughs> and then after a while, he said, um, Ananda, I've been talking a long time. My back is really hurting me, and I need to stretch. So you now give a talk to the Sakyans. Talk to them about the disciple in higher training who is practicing the path. My back is aching, and I will go and stretch. So he went off, and Ananda then gave a whole talk, at the end of which the Buddha came, you know, sat back up again from stretching his back and said, excellent, Ananda, excellent, you know. And there were other times where he said, if you had come to me with a question, I would have said the same thing. That's called Buddha Vachana, the word of the Buddha, when one of the other monks or nuns gives a talk or answers a question. The people they talked to always would go to the Buddha and said, this is what they said. You always wonder, why didn't they just ask the Buddha in the first place? But anyway, they'd, they'd <laughs> ask, this is what they, he or she said. And the Buddha would say, yes, excellent. Had you asked me, I would have said the same thing. So he said that at this point about Ananda. He also said at the time of his death, well, before he died, the time when he announced he was going to die, the Buddha, he said that Ananda has four remarkable and wonderful qualities. This is at the end of the 25 years. What are they? If a company of monks comes to see Ananda, they are pleased at the sight of him. And when Ananda talks Dhamma to them, they are pleased. And when he is silent, they are disappointed. And so it is, too, with nuns, with male and female lay followers. So basically, Ananda was well-beloved for teaching the Dhamma and for his kindness. He was a great supporter of the nuns, Ananda. And in fact, for many, for in the beginning, there was no non-sangha. There was just the sangha of, of monks, of bhikkhus. And I don't want to go into the whole story, but um, the woman who was um, uh, Buddha's aunt, who had raised him because his mother died when he was a week old, Mahapajapati, Gotami. Later in life, she wanted to become a nun and, and begged the Buddha to start a uh, a sangha of nuns, and he resisted, which it's never really explained why, but he resisted. And at one point, Ananda, again in his role of bridge, kind of not interceded, but he spoke up when the Buddha had three times refused Mahapajapati Gotami. <laughs> Technically, you could ask the Buddha for something and ask him up to three times, and the third time he would say yes if he could. But this time, he didn't say yes. So, the, so it said Ananda thought, hmm, let me ask in another way. So he came in, you know, and speaking on the side of the women. 
And he asked the Buddha two questions. He said, Lord, is it true, is it possible that women can awaken to the same wisdom that men can? And the Buddha said, absolutely, no question. So then Ananda said, well, looking on, he, he then interceded in a personal way, and only he could have done this. He said to the Buddha, well, look how much she has done for you in your life. You know, when you were young, she suckled you, she fed you, she raised you as her own child. She's so sincere. It would be good, Lord, if women could become nuns. And at this point, the Buddha agreed. So there's a way that uh, Ananda, in his kindness, was really, I wouldn't say a protector of the nuns, because they had the Buddha as their protector. But he was a, a great favorite with the nuns, which once in a while led him into a little bit of trouble. Just because he was so open and friendly, sometimes he would get over-enthusiastic. But I'll say that in a moment. In the same way, I mean, the nuns and the monks, the nuns would get teachings from the, from the monks, but they lived in, in separate communities. Then the monks would go to the nuns and teach. And then later, the nuns developed their own teachers. So I'll mention some of the women teachers uh, a little later. I won't talk about Ananda the whole time. But he also had this same quality of uh, ability to connect with lay people, laymen and lay women. And you can just get the feeling that women really trusted him in a way, that he was kind to them, not so aloof. So one story about this is King Pasanadi, who was one of the kings of the area, who was a great devotee of the Buddha. And it, apparently, the kings at this time, they had many wives and many consorts, like they had whole harems of wives and consorts. And these kind of royal women were actually kind of prisoners. They weren't allowed out of the harem. So you read in different suttas where the royal women wanted to go to the Buddha and get teachings, and they weren't allowed to. They couldn't wander freely. In fact, slave women had much more freedom of movement than the royal women. So all the wives of the king, they really begged the king to ask a teacher of the, one of the Buddha's teachers to come to teach them. And so King Pasanadi, of course, agreed. He said, well, who do you want? And they all conferred and immediately said, Ananda, we want Ananda. So the Buddha went and, um, and, and Pasanadi went to the Buddha and asked him, and the Buddha agreed. And then on a regular basis, Ananda would go and teach the king's wives. And so one time when he went, and this is just a story of his kind of his willingness to kind of get involved in the lay level of junk that happens and his wisdom in dealing with it. One time he went to teach these wives and they were all upset and they couldn't focus because someone had stolen one of the king's really important jewels and everyone had been searched and they couldn't find it, but it, everything was in an uproar, basically. So, you know, everybody was mistrusting everyone else, not just the women, but in the whole court. So Ananda came up with this ingenious plan, which King Pasanadi adopted, which was, he said, Take a t set up a tent in your courtyard that has, you know, flaps so no one can see in, and inside put a big pot of water, and then have everyone who's a suspect go in singly, one at a time, and whoever has the jewel can just drop it in that pot of water. So then at the end of the time, after all the suspects had gone in and out, the king went and there was the jewel. 
So Ananda accomplished three things. You know, he, he ended the crisis, so the king got back his property. Nobody was blamed. Nobody was punished. All suspicion was done away with. And he was really uh, kind of praised by the king, but also by the monks, for restoring the peace through gentle means. And that was an aspect of his kindness and his wisdom and his ability to tune in, to restore the peace by gentle means. Another example of his kindness that I've always loved, this is from the Agamas, which is a later collection, but I, it, it sounds really true. It sounds like Ananda to me. So I'll read it to you. This is from, from Jack's compilation. So he was being sent somewhere by the Buddha on a mission, so he was on a long walk, and he passed a well on the outside of a village, and he saw Pakati, a young outcast woman, and asked her for water to drink. Mostly monks could not ask for food or anything, but they could ask for water. But she was from the outcast, from the lower caste, and she said, oh no, I'm too humbly born. I can't give you water. Do not ask anything of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of low caste. And that's the way it was at that time in India, the so-called low caste untouchables. The belief was that, that if you took anything from them, a higher caste person would be contaminated. You know, and that's how she thought of herself. And Ananda replied, I'm not asking about your caste, but simply for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully and she gave Ananda water to drink. He thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. She'd heard that he was a disciple of the Buddha, so she went to the Blessed One and said, O oh Lord, help me. Let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see him and minister unto him, for I love Ananda. And the Blessed One understood the emotions of her heart, and he said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice towards yourself and practice it towards others. I love that because that's the way that Ananda seemed to affect people by his kindness, just by not accepting that she was a low caste and would contaminate him. And that was an aspect of the Buddha's radical teachings, actually. When he set up his sangha of both monks and nuns, he, within the sangha, it had nothing to do with caste, which was so rigid, rigidly stratified in Indian society at that time. But in the, both the monks and the nuns sangha, the hierarchy was dependent on when you ordained. You know? so, uh, uh, an outcast person like that woman Pakati, she could have ordained as a nun, and she would have been a nun ahead of the next nun who ordained, even if that next nun had been a wife of the king. So that was really radical, and that's what Ananda was showing just in his you know, sense of accepting someone just as they are and meeting them with kindness. He had no pride. But sometimes, just as this woman misunderstood his kindness, you know, and turned it into a personal kind of love for Ananda. When I said he got into a little bit of trouble with the nuns sometimes, it's not that he did anything wrong, 
But sometimes he was just so kind and so enthusiastic, you know. He was just really, I don't know if you could say impulsive about any of these guys, but close to it, as close as you could get to impulsive in that, in that time. So there's one story when he was admonished by Mahakasapa. Now Mahakasapa is one of, one of the great disciples of the Buddha. He's the renowned, the most ascetic of all the Buddha's great disciples. And so, I mean, I don't go into his whole story, but he's, he's, he sounds like he was a little bit of a rough, rough guy. You know, he didn't really like hanging out with people too much. He loved being extremely ascetic, loved being out in nature. There's actually lots of poems where he's extolling how much he loves nature, which is really nice to hear. But he, he wasn't like the most um, maybe personally empathetic <laughs> as Ananda was. But he was, again, he was an arhat. So once uh, the nuns, some of the nuns that Ananda used to visit and teach frequently, he, Ananda asked Mahakashapa to come and teach. And Kashapa resisted. He didn't want to go for a couple of times. But finally, he came. And he went. And Mahakashapa gave you know, a whole discourse to the nuns. He talked the whole time. And then when he finished, one of the nuns, who clearly really liked Ananda, kind of blamed Mahakasapa for doing all the talking. You know? And so he said, she said, this is what's the quote that comes, says, it's as if a needle seller was peddling his wares in the presence of the needle maker. So you're saying this about Kasapa, you know, you're doing all the talking and the really good guy is sitting here silence, in silence. And then Ananda immediately jumped in and begged Mahakasapa, oh, please forgive her, please forgive her. And so it's interesting that Mahakasapa actually admonished Ananda for that. And that's what's interesting, that the nun was clearly off. I mean, that's, that's obvious. Remember, he's an arhat. And in terms of um, really generating wholesome speech or unwholesome speech, putting down an arhat not really, it wasn't really the, the greatest thing to do, you know. <laughs> Mahakasapa, oh my God, we have to listen to him when we could have Ananda? And then Ananda's basically jumping in and saying, oh, oh, don't give her, don't, don't be mean to her, you know, don't, you know. So he's almost trying to, to block, you know, what her learning, what she did that was unskillful, which to us often we can hear that as being kind, Ananda jumps in and goes, oh, no, forgive her, forgive her, leave her alone. But that's not really the way the Buddha Sasana worked. We learned about, and, and later say how the Buddha admonished Ananda, admonishment isn't out of anger or saying you're bad, you stupid jerk. You know, that's how we hear admonishment. Admonishment is saying, you know, this isn't so skillful. This would be more skillful. This other way would be for your own well-being and happiness. And so for Ananda to jump in and say, oh, no, 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 don't, you know, forgive her, is actually blocking that. And so Kashapa actually, again, he was a little tough, though. He actually admonished um, Ananda, saying that, you know, in his zeal to teach the nuns, he was overlooking possibly the dangers and the effects of their becoming too attached to him. And so I think that's just really interesting. He's like so wanting to help that he gets a little too close sometimes. And that's where you can see he's, he's you know, still one on the path of higher training. It's what makes him lovable, of course. And for us, I find that a very delicate and powerful teaching. Kind, generous, almost impulsive. 
the one other time that the Buddha actually admonished Ananda. Again, it, it comes out of his um, really being such a social guy. But the Buddha's admonishing, I also think, is interesting in terms of uh, just Dhamma teaching. It's said elsewhere in the suttas that one who is easily admonished is a really uh, beautiful and wholesome quality because that's how we learn. That's how we're letting go of our sense of self when someone, and remember, admonishment isn't with anger or blame. Admonishment is, oh, you know, this isn't so helpful. This would be more in line with wisdom. And one who is open to that, who is easily admonished, is free from pride and open to learning, not you know, caught in self-centered. So when we go, oh my God, it's right, I'm so bad, I'm so stupid, oh, that's all about me, me, me. You know? And then you say, oh yeah, it is about me, me, me. I was like, oh, oh. And we, to be even imagine, oh, look at that, what I did. I got in the way, she was too attached to me and I didn't see it, that's interesting. Next time I'll see it because it'll be for her good, it'll be for my good, it'll be for the good of both. Such an open way. So one time, the time that the Buddha admonished Ananda for an action, he often admonished him for, for saying things that weren't completely true. I mean, the most famous one being after Ananda had been uh, meditating on the dependent origination, which is a very central and complex teaching, and going to the Buddha and saying, Oh, Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination, it's just so clear, so obvious, so, you know. And the Buddha often, not so Ananda, not so Ananda, you know, it's very difficult to understand. But this admonishment was more in terms of action. So another thing apparently Ananda was good at was sewing. And the, the monks have to sew their own robes, patch their robes together, sew the hems and all, different ways to do that and all. And Ananda, again, was very good at this. And he's a man of many talents. And so the Buddha praised him for how well he could do it and, and that he should teach the other monks how to sew. Then later, when they were at a certain place in a monastery, the Buddha came and asked Ananda how many monks were living there. And he saw that he'd set up this like a huge circle of sort of like if we put all the Zafus into a circle and there was a big circle where all the monks were going to sit. And Ananda said, oh, it's time for us to learn how to sew our robes properly. And it seemed like he'd set up a kind of a, an every evening sewing circle, sort of, you know, where the monks would all come in the evening and they'd all sit around and sew their robes. And basically it turned into a time when they would indulge in frivolous chatter. Basically, you know, just sit around and shoot the breeze, I guess, as far as that happened at that time for monks. Now, this doesn't seem horribly frivolous to us. But in terms of that time, the Buddha, this is really where he uh, very uh, strongly admonished Ananda. He said, just to recognize that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten it, because it's actually quite long. But he says, when a monk who enjoys socializing who, is, who finds contentment in socializing, who's really somehow attached to togetherness, whoever finds his whole happiness in togetherness will have no access to the bliss which exists independent of the desire.
for togetherness. So she's not saying togetherness is bad, but how this every evening sewing circle was subtly leading into an attachment, a contentment with togetherness. And he said that a, a monk, a bhikkhu, could attain the bliss of renunciation at will, the bliss of solitude, the bliss of tranquility, the bliss of awakening in their totality when they're pleased with, find contentment in togetherness, this is impossible. So he's basically saying, not that we can never be together, but until we have no attachment at all to the contentment of togetherness, to socializing, only then can we truly, completely taste the bliss of freedom. That's kind of a hard teaching to the, us, those of us who enjoy the bliss of togetherness. And remember, this is why it's, the, the Buddha was always very straight with Ananda. And I know in our culture, it's easy to take a little bit of rationalization. Well, what's wrong with togetherness? It's not just that you have to all go off in the wilderness. He's not saying that. He's just saying, don't indulge in it. Don't set up a situation in Nanda because you're an important teacher that feeds people's attachment to togetherness. And he goes on, you know, he gives a whole long uh, admonishment. And then at the end of it, what I, I really love is he then speaks directly to Ananda out of his love for him, basically saying, shorthand, that I'm admonishing you so that you can attain, you know, the highest peace. I'm basically admonishing you because I know you love me and I know you love the Dhamma and I want you to be free. He says, therefore, Ananda, have amity, friendship towards me, not hostility. For long will that be for your benefit and happiness. And he's talking about why he's admonishing him. He said, I shall not treat you, Ananda, as a potter treats his unfired pots. And that analogy, an unfired pot is one that's been formed in clay and dried, but not fired. It's very brittle. As Bhikkhu Bodhi says in, his, in the uh, 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 notes, an unfired pot is basically saying, if I treated you like I treated an unfired pot, it's like walking on eggshells. You're very sensitive. You're very touchy. If I tap on you too hard, you'll break, you know? But he says, I'm admonishing you. I'm not treating you like an unfired pot. Repeatedly admonishing, I shall speak to you. Repeatedly testing, and one who is sound will stand the test. So he's making it clear that he's holding nothing back with Ananda because he really knows that his love of the Dhamma, his faith in the Dhamma is so pure that he won't be crushed by that. And it's true, Ananda didn't really have any pride and he had no enemies, which they point out is actually quite, I mean, it's pretty amazing to have no enemies, no one was jealous of him because he didn't have pride. And um, Helmut Hecker in The Disciples of the Buddha points out, well, it's easy for someone like the Ananda's cousin, Anuruddha, who was in our hut to have no enemies because he didn't hang out with people at all. You know, he just stayed out, you know, on his own. Ananda was more with people than almost any other monk, and still he had no enemies. 
And the other piece of his humanness that I really love is his, there's, there's two times that he really expresses grief in a way that's so human. You know, when the Buddha is saying when someone dies, he, he always just says, how many times have I told you? All that comes together has to come apart, you know? But Ananda really expresses grief. He's kind of like our, to me, he's like our stand-in for how it feels. The first time is his, he, his strongest friend was Sariputta, the Buddha's main disciple. And Ananda and Sariputta would often go teaching together or go visiting other disciples together. And Sariputta died uh, a while before the Buddha died. And Ananda, it said he was just, he felt like he'd fallen into an abyss, you know, of depression, of grief. And this is the poem in the Theragata that he said to have exclaimed at the time of Sariputta's death. All the directions are obscure. The teachings are not clear to me. With our benevolent friend gone, it seems as if all is darkness. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. Remember that next time you're in grief. There's no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. The old ones have all passed away. I do not fit in with the new. And so today I muse alone, like a bird who has gone to roost. Ananda missing his friend, uh, Sariputta. And then at that point, the Buddha consoled Ananda with one of his Pepi Dhamma talks. But the point he made was, he said, did Sariputta's death, did he, to Ananda, did that take away your virtue? Did that take away your wisdom? Does Sariputta's death take away your meditation? Does it take away your liberation? And Ananda said, no, of course not. And he said, so, you know, this is where you take your refuge. You know, no friend can ultimately be our refuge. And of course, uh, preceding his own death, the Buddha said the same thing. And that's a very famous um, scene of grief when the Buddha announced that he was going to die in three months. And he was with a whole group of people, and Ananda kind of disappeared at that point. And then later, the Buddha, of course, knew where he went. And later he said, okay, where's Ananda? Huh? Well, somebody go find Ananda. And they found Ananda, and he was, he was leaning against a doorpost, weeping. And I read somewhere that there are, there are many pieces of artwork that kind of depict this, this devoted 25-year uh, attendant hearing that the Buddha's going to die in three months. And he's leaping, leaning against the, door, the doorpost, weeping. And he's, he's saying, I'm still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away who is so compassionate to me. And so the Buddha calls him, and he says what you'd expect, you know. First, he admonishes him. He says, enough, Ananda. Do not weep and wail. Haven't I told you? you know? And then it's the usual thing, that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other. How could it be? that I should not pass away. 
But then he really praises him. He says, for a long time, Ananda, you've been in the Tathagata's presence, showing loving kindness in acts of body, of speech, and mind, beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly, and unstintingly. You have achieved much merit, Ananda. Make the effort in a short time you will be free of the corruptions. And then he turns to all the monks. Monks, all those who were fully enlightened Buddhas in the past have had just such a chief attendant as Ananda, and so too will those in the future. Monks, Ananda is wise. He knows when it is the right time for monks to come to see the Tathagata, when is the right time for nuns, for male lay followers, for female lay followers, for kings, ministers, leaders, and their pupils. And that's when he goes on to say Ananda has these four remarkable and wonderful qualities. Basically, that all are pleased at the sight of him. And so that's, that's Ananda, the guardian of the Dhamma, 25 years following one step behind the Buddha with thoughts, speech, and action of loving kindness, but without excluding anyone. Loving the Dhamma because he loved the Buddha and doing everything he could to make it accessible to everyone else. Really, to me, a very inspiring being. Hmm. Not so much time, but I just want to talk about a couple of women disciples. So as the nuns um, sangha got more mature, the monks continued to teach, but the nuns also grew up their own teachers, their own women who had their own stories and their, their own wisdom. You know, So they were really quite equal in the way of wisdom and freedom to the monks. So since we got into the women from Ananda, I'll just give a short story of a couple of them. One, the one who was considered the greatest teacher. Her name was Damadina. And again, all these are just like regular people, you know, that we can in some way relate to their lives, to their stories. She was uh, the wife of a man named Wisaka, middle class, pretty well-to-do in Rajagaha. And they had a very happy marriage. So this is one of the stories where not enormous suffering brought the woman to the Dhamma, which is often the case that they became nuns out of enormous suffering. And that's often the case now in Thailand and Burma. Even when you talk to some of the brightest nuns, you find that when they first became nuns, there was a lot of suffering going on. Anyway, but she didn't. And their marriage was very happy. And they were very together. They would always eat together. But one day, her husband came home from the market. And instead of being friendly and talking, he just like passed by her, abstracted, and went into the next room. And so it said she went into, it's so, so human. She said, what did I do? He doesn't love me anymore. What's the problem? What, you know, what's happening? Our marriage is on the rocks. And she got very upset. And finally he came, and what had happened is he had heard the Buddha and gotten quite inspired. And so he said to her, Damadina, I'm inspired. I want to become a monk. So I will give you all my wealth, you know, and you can stay here. You can go back to your family. Um, I give you everything I have. So she thought about it. She said, well, you know what? I want to renounce also. I'd also like to become a nun. So he said, okay. 
So before he became a monk, he gave her a big send-off, you know. He arranged for her to go in a big palanquin, people carrying her, and she went and ordained. And so once you're ordained, of course, you don't see your family anymore. And she practiced and became, of course, completely awakened. And she also became one of the women with the highest insight. And she became a great teacher. And later in her wandering, she came back to Rajagaha, where she'd live, and found out, guess what? Her husband never managed to make it to becoming a monk. So he was still hanging out in Rajagaha. But he was really still inspired by the Dhamma. This is what Sayada Upandita says often. He goes, women make the really good yogis. <laughs> Nothing personal, but he just says that sometimes. So he hadn't become a monk, but he was very interested in the Dhamma. So he went to her, but as a seeker, not as her husband, you know, and said, you know, sister, uh, Dhamma Dina, he, and he asked her a whole series of questions. And this is one of, actually, one of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, this is the, the lesser series of questions that is all about Wisaka asking questions to Dhammadina and her answering. There's not that many places in the sutta where it's elevated to the same equality as a teaching of the Buddha. Being in the Majjhima Nikaya, it is elevated to that. Um, for what is meditation? She says, meditation is the focusing of the heart. And he keeps going on and on and finally asking her about nirvana. And finally she says, okay, now you should go talk to the Buddha. You know, go ask him. And again, it's one of those occasions where he said, what she said, that's exactly what I would have said. She answered exactly as I would have. So she was considered one of the foremost teachers of the Dhamma of the women, Dhammadina. One of the other um, foremost women in the Sangha, she was one of the two leaders of the Sangha, was Kema. And I just like her story of how she became a nun. Probably not likely to happen to any of us, but it's one I like. She was um, the chief consort of one of the kings, Bimbisara, who was, Bimbisara was sort of a follower of the Buddha, not quite as devoted as Pasanati, but he was a follower. But Kema, was extremely beautiful and extremely conceited. And she loved pleasure and she loved sensuality. So even when the Buddha would come to the beautiful park nearby, she wouldn't go to hear it. Because she said, I've heard that he talks about the dangers of sense pleasures and he advocates renunciation. And frankly, she didn't want to hear anything about it. She loved her life and her beauty and everything. So Bimbisara, for some reason, really wanted her to go hear the Buddha. So he organized like a kind of a, an enticement. The Buddha was teaching in a particular beautiful park. So Bimbisara hired a musician to walk around singing a song extolling the beauty of this particular park. And of course, knowing that Kema would be seduced because she loved pleasure and she loved beauty. So she went. And then when she got there, of course, there was the Buddha teaching. And she, she couldn't help but hear it. And there was the Buddha with his all-encompassing mind that could know just whose mind was ripe to hear the Dhamma and just what to say to hook him. As uh, <laughs> one of my earlier teachers, uh, a character, uh, Robert Hover, used to say, the velvet-gloved iron fist of the Dhamma. So, so what he did 
was he created with his psychic powers an image of an incredibly beautiful goddess, far more beautiful than Kema. And because she loved beauty, she was completely attracted. And, wow, that's incredible. What beauty. And then he had it gradually decay. You know, he had her beauty kind of gradually wither and turn to middle age. And the teeth started to rot. And the skin started to sag. And the hair fell out, you know, and gradually died. And Kema got it, right? <laughs> she, oh. It's going to be the same for me. And then he gave a whole talk, you know, about how people devoted, devoted to physical beauty and sensual pleasure were bound to the world. Those who renounced were free of attachments, were free. And she is one of the rare lay people that is recorded that on just hearing this one talk, she became completely awakened. She became in our hot. That's why I said it's not so likely to happen to us, okay. What I like about her story is the fact that she was so ready to hear the Dhamma, but completely resistant to it. You know, she just needed to hear one of this, sort of like just on the edge of, no, I love my pleasures and I don't want to hear about anything else. You know, let me hold on. When it's just on the other side of that, it's complete freedom, you know? Sort of like she had what, what, what um, Chogim Trungpa used to call nostalgia for samsara. Just, you know, we love it. No, I want my pleasures. Don't make me give them up, you know. Not imagining the freedom and beauty and peace on the other side. So she became one of the great teachers. I'll read you part of her poem. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed, the great dark is torn apart, and death, you too are destroyed. Fools who don't know things as they really are revere the mansions of the moon and tend the fire in the wood, thinking this is purity. That's talking about some of the kind of Brahminical um, rituals, thinking that's purity. But for myself, I honor the enlightened one, the best of all. And practicing his teaching, I'm completely freed from suffering. OK, one more woman. And then just a little bit about Anatta Pindaka, because I love him too. This other woman, Punika, she was a slave. She was actually the slave of Anatta Pindaka, who was the Buddhist most generous uh, supporter, and also uh, partially awakened. So who can figure out the kind of the society norms of the time? The kings had all these wives and mistresses and slaves. And anyway, so Punika was a slave, and she used to have to go down to the water, the stream, in the early cold morning and draw water for the family. And she was apparently really, it's kind of like speaking truth to power, or so clear in her faith, in her understanding of the Dhamma. So as a slave, she had more ability to get around. And she had heard the Buddha teaching. And she had really understood the Dhamma and had great faith in it. So one woman, she, one, one day she was down drawing water. And she had such confidence that her, her poem is kind of a, a, a poem. She's talking to a Brahmin man who comes down, the Brahmin of the high caste. And he came down because there was the um, belief at the time maybe still to some extent, if you washed yourself off 
in holy water, it purified you of all your sins. So he was there, you know, washing off all his bad karma in the water. And she basically says, what do you think you're doing? You know, this is her poem talking to him. And she says, I'm a water carrier. Even in the cold, I have always gone down to the water because I'm frightened of punishment or the angry words of high-class women. But what are you afraid of, Brahmin, that makes you go down to the water? Your limbs shake with bitter cold. And the Brahma says, you know why, Punika. I am doing good to prevent evil. Anyone young or old who has done something bad is freed by washing it in the water. And she says, and this is the sense of the confidence, just the confidence of knowing the Dhamma. She says to him, who ever told you that you are freed from evil by washing? The blind leading the blind. In that case, all frogs and turtles would go to heaven, <laughs> and water snakes and crocodiles, and the rest of the water creatures. She goes on and on, you know. Thieves, executioners, other wrongdoers would be freed from their bad karma by washing in water. If these streams carried away all your old evil, they would carry away your virtue, too. You would be separated from both. Rather, just don't do that thing, the fear of which leads you down to the water. Stop now, Brahman, and save your skin from the cold. That's kind of tough, huh? Speaking to, and he hears her, of course, because she's speaking with such confidence. He says, you're on the wrong road. You brought me back. He goes, I'll give you the robe I bathed in. <laughs> she goes, keep your robe. I don't want it. <laughs> if you're afraid of pain, if you don't like it, do nothing evil, either openly or in secret. She just gives him a whole Dhamma teaching. And then he says, I take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. I train in the precepts. This is good. So she basically, you know, turned the guy on to the Dhamma. And then later, she clearly was gutsy. She went to the Buddha and said, I want to become a nun. But slaves were not allowed to become nuns or monks. And the Buddha was about to leave the area. And she goes to him and says, well, just wait. Would you just go talk to Anatta Pindaka and have him give permission that I could become a nun? And the Buddha said, OK. Went and talked to Anatta Pindaka, who said, never matter. She's freed. I adopt her as my daughter. And she became a nun. So just to know there's all these different ways that women became involved in becoming nuns and powerful teachers, strong faith in the Dhamma. There's lots of poems by the women. This book, The First Buddhist Women by Susan Murcott, is really quite inspiring with a lot of the stories of the nuns and their poems. So just a few more minutes, I want to say a couple of stories of Anattapindaka. He was the man who was the greatest lay supporter of the Buddha, very rich. And what's, again, besides his incredible generosity, what's inspiring about him is his enormous faith, just enormous faith, and that faith colored his generosity. There's great lessons on generosity from Anattapindaka. First, from the first time that he ever heard about the Buddha, he was visiting his brother-in-law, and the house was in an uproar. And uh, he said, what's going on? And the, the uh, brother-in-law said, well, the enlightened one is coming. We are getting ready for him tomorrow. And Anattapindaka said, the enlightened one? 
is there an enlightened one? And he just got so excited. He didn't even know why. He couldn't sleep all night. And then early in the morning, he just had to go running out really early to meet the Buddha. Kind of when you get that intuitive sense of something you just, that's going to change your life and you don't know what it is. I love that. You know, it's so naive and he just acts on it. And he goes running out and he gets really afraid on the way to the Buddha. You know, kind of not knowing what's happening, he goes to turn around and then it says an invisible spirit came and urged him on. It's kind of like whether the invisible spirit's a spirit or our own inner intuition. We say, no, I can't do this. This is too stupid. What am I going to say? And the intuition says, no, go. This is far more important. So finally he went and saw a figure walking in the distance, which was, of course, the Buddha. And he stopped. And the Buddha called, come, Sudatta, which was a name that no one else called. And he was surprised the Buddha knew it. I said he went up, but he was so kind of off balance you know, out of presence, you know, you're just like so excited to be in the presence of the Buddha. He just fell down at his feet and he stammered. He said, oh, did you sleep well? Did the Blessed One sleep well? It's like, you know, just not knowing what to say. And of course, you know, the Buddha was, uh, he said, always sleeps well. The Brahmin who is fully quenched and went on and gave him a whole talk and not the Pindaka, the Dhamma eye opened. He understood, you know the Four Noble Truths. It says, the dust-free, stainless eye of truth opened for Anattapindaka. Whatever has the nature of arising, all that has the nature of cessation, the beginning of awakening. And so then, from then on, he just devoted himself to supporting the Buddha, supporting the Sangha. He went back to Savati and at enormous, he asked the Buddha if the Buddha would accept if he bought a park and gave it to him to make a monastery. And the Buddha said, yes, he would accept that. So Anattapindaka went back and at enormous expense, a whole long story, he bought the Jeta Grove from Prince Jeta at a huge amount of money. And now so many suttas begin, you know, thus I have heard, that's Ananda, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in the Jeta Grove, the monastery of Anattapindaka. The Buddha ended up spending 19 of his 45 range retreats there. And he not only bought the monastery and offered it, he had buildings built. He would bring the, the monks robes every day. He made sure they had food every day. He made sure they had medicine all the time. And he also invited hundreds of monks every day to his mansion to feed them. It just goes on and on, his generosity. But the important thing of his generosity is that it came from total faith, that real generosity is this open-hearted faith and happiness producing, not about result. Because this is a great story from that King Pasanadi, who again was a devotee of the Buddha. And he heard of Anattapindaka's generosity and how he was having 500 monks every day. So he said, I too want to do that. I too want to imitate. So he gave orders you know, to his servants, OK, every day I'm inviting 500 monks, cook and serve them. So he started doing that. But then he was walking in the city, and he heard that from his supporters, that the monks would come to his house, and they'd be offered the food. But then they would go into the city. And they would offer, each monk would offer his bowl of food to one of their other supporters who would then offer it back to the monk. And then the monk would eat it. And, and uh, 
King Pasanati said, what's that about? This is the best food, the richest food, the most well-prepared food. Why is this happening? And the Buddha explained to the king that in the palace, in his palace, his servants who distributed the food had no inner feeling about it. They were just following orders. And it was just as if they were cleaning out a barn or taking a thief to court. They just did whatever the king told them to do. They lacked faith and they had no love for the monks. Many of them even thought the monks were parasites living by the labor of the working population. Anything that was given in that spirit, no one could feel comfortable accepting it, even when the meal was of the most delicious food. So the monks would take the food and offer it, give it to one of their devoted lay supporters who would offer it back again. And then it was really a true dana. So Anattapindika, he embodied this spirit of real open-hearted faith and generosity. It was really quite beautiful. And so then just the last thing, Ellen, I know it's a little over, but I have to, have to tell this last story of Anattapindika because it inspires me really, really a lot. When he was dying, it's kind of his last act of generosity in a way, in a different kind of a way. He was ill and dying, and Sariputta was very close to Anattapindika. So when he was dying, Sariputta and Ananda together went to visit Anattapindika. And uh, you know, Sariputta says, are you getting well? And he says, no, my painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. It's as if my head were being split open with a sharp sword. The guy's not feeling too good. So, Anatta, so Sariputta gave him a very profound teaching. And I'm just going to extremely shorten it, but he, he gave him a teaching on not clinging to anything. He says, you should train thus. I will not cling to the eye. My consciousness will not be dependent on the eye, the ear, the nose, the body, the mind, or consciousness. Householder, you will train thus. I will not cling to forms. I will not cling to sounds to mind objects, to tangibles, and my consciousness will not be dependent on mind objects. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to eye consciousness or any of the sense door consciousnesses. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to contact. I will not cling to feeling born of eye contact or ear contact or mind contact. My consciousness will not be dependent on feeling. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to the earth element, to the water element, the fire element, the air element, the space element, or the consciousness element. My consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, the five aggregates. Householder, you should train thus. I will not cling to the base of infinite space. And he goes through the higher jhanas. You should train thus. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, and examined by the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on that. Thus you should train. When this was said, the householder Anattapindika wept and shed tears. And Ananda asked him, are you foundering, householder? Are you sinking? Are you dying? 
He says, I am not dying, Venerable Ananda, but although I have long waited upon the teachers and the bhikkhus worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dhamma. And Ananda says, such talk on the Dhamma householder is not given to lay people clothed in white. Such talk on the Dhamma is given only to those who have gone forth, to those who are ordained. And, and Anatta Pindika says, well then, Venerable Sariputta, let such talk on the Dhamma be given to lay people. There are clans, men and women with little dust in their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dhamma. There will be those who will understand this Dhamma. And then saying that, he died. So in a way, we have Anatta Pindika to thank for the subtlety of the Dhamma teachings being available to all of us, lay people, in its depth, in its entirety, in its totality. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.